here we go. Verse 11 of Exodus 2. We're going to kind of continue and pick back up. Here's what it says. Many years later, this baby whose name is Moses had grown up. He went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. Now, Moses, I don't know how old he is, but he's at an age that he understands he's wildly privileged compared to his biological family, the millions that are in slavery and being slaughtered. He understands he's actually part of that family, but he's growing up in a completely different context. Like his meals are prepared for him. He gets good education. He doesn't have to work. He's safe. He's comfortable. He has everything he needs. He has a future, but he knows all of his biological family's not that way. And he knows there's a generation that's his age that was all killed off. So for whatever reason, he decides to go and visit his people. I don't know if he's going to see his mom. I don't know if he's going to see his dad or his siblings or just the people that he knew he would have been a part of had he not been adopted, but he goes out and he gets eyes on what their life is like. I can imagine this like overwhelming feeling for him, like, man, this is my lifestyle, and now I'm getting eyes on the conditions that the rest of my biological family is living in. This is where he's at, got to be pretty wild. And so let me reread that verse, 11, many years later. When Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. So not only does he get eyes on their working conditions and their lifestyle, he now gets eyes on their mistreatment. In verse 12, after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. We call this first-degree murder because it was premeditated and willful. But verse 13, the next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. Now, I think, I think we can understand where Moses is at right now. He gets eyes on his people, and he said, man, they're being so mistreated, but not just that. It's not just working conditions and labor. They're being mistreated and beaten unjustly and killed unjustly. And he's so overwhelmed and upset by it that he sees one of these beatings, and he decides to kill the Egyptian responsible. And then the next day, he goes out, and he sees two people in his biological family that are fighting each other. You can understand why he's upset. He's saying, listen, I've come out. Haven't the Egyptians beaten you enough? Like, aren't you wearing enough in slavery and murder and beatings from the Egyptians to not do it to each other? Like, you're going to have enough scars. Why are you fighting with each other? Like, find alignment. Find unity. In verse 14, the man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. Thought it was a secret, but it wasn't. Verse 15, and sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. So Moses commits this murder. He thinks it goes unnoticed, and to his shock the next day, not only do his people know about the murder, but he knows this has now gotten to Pharaoh. If Pharaoh needed or wanted an opportunity to kill him, he finally has it. 
So now there's a commission out on Moses' head. Let's kill him for his crime. I can imagine being the king and thinking to myself, if this moment turns into a movement, we're going to have an issue. If these Israelites start to rise up and start killing Egyptians for mistreatment, we're going to lose control of the country. We're just going to lose control of this throne. And so he's like, we just got to kill Moses, we have to take care of this at the source. Moses hears this is coming, and he leaves. For 40 years, he leaves, lives a life somewhere else. And I'm trying to imagine this moment for all the Israelites left behind. Like, they're getting crushed day after day for their whole lives. They don't know anything outside of slavery. This has been going on for hundreds of years, which means... Every Israelite alive only knows slavery. And their parents only know slavery. And their grandparents only know slavery. And their great-grandparents only know slavery. So you can imagine what's true of them once one of their own gets in the house of the king. Like I can imagine me being in slavery and being crushed and saying, wait, one of our own's now in there. One of our own's now protected. He's a grandchild of the king. We finally have somebody that can speak for our interests. We finally have somebody that has privilege, that has a voice, that has authority to start speaking on our behalf. I can imagine the hope that would be put in Moses. And then next thing you know, he screws it all up and then leaves everybody behind. Like your one chance of having somebody speak on your behalf, one of your own biological in the families, in the house of Pharaoh. But he screws it up and leaves like you don't even exist, pursuing his vitality instead of the people's. I can imagine the kind of hope that is crushed in this moment. I have a good friend who, uh, when he was 23 years old, he was in grad school. He started having some blurriness in his vision and he went and saw a doctor and he got diagnosed with an eye condition where they said there's no known cure and over the next couple months your vision is going to deteriorate and you're going to be completely blind here in a little bit and so obviously that that's crushing news as he knows his eyes are going to deteriorate and he is no longer going to see things he's In year one of two of grad school, he's now trying to figure out, I don't have any independence. How am I going to finish my degree? My plan for the future, everything's ruined. And then he gets pursued by somebody who says, listen, you have actually a variant of this eye condition where a shot exists that might be able to solve your problem. So they come to him and they say, hey, We actually want to give you a shot because there's a chance that this whole nightmare could be over this month. You have the variant. And so he puts all of his hope, so much excitement. He thinks to himself, man, this nightmare is about to be over. Like, I'm going to gain independence. I'm going to start seeing faces again. I'm going to be able to drive cars. And then that shot gets postponed a month. And so while he's crushed, he just thinks, well, okay, I just got to live in this nightmare for one more month. And then next month, I'm going to get the shot. It's going to be taken care of. And then it gets postponed again. And then it gets postponed again and again and again. And hearing him talk about this moment, he would tell you more crushing than not being able to see was the hope that this nightmare could be over and it still not be over. 
like more crushing than being blind was having hope that the nightmare is going to be over and it not actually going that way. He eventually did get the shot and it didn't work. To this day, is blind, has been blind for nine years, learning to live for 23 years with 2020 vision, and for whatever reason, losing all of that in a matter of months, and would tell you far more difficult than being blind was hope being crushed. And so here's the situation you have in Exodus. You've got a group of people who only know hardship and slavery and beatings and murder, who finally have one of their own in the house. The hope they would put in him to put their interests above his. Their hope screwed it up and left them all behind to have his own life for his own vitality, never to be seen again. But chapter two isn't over. And I told you that what we're going to do here this morning is maybe going to talk about one of the most key turning points in all of the Bible, definitely in this section of the Bible. And, and here's where it is. Look at verse 23 of Exodus 2. Here, here's what it says. Years passed, 40 years. They've been in slavery for hundreds of years before Moses. And now Moses leaves another 40. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. They've been crying out to God for hundreds of years. And another 40. Verse 24, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Now, remember that this section of the Bible is designed for God to define who he is to mankind. It's designed for us to get to see who God is and what he's like, how he feels and what he sees. If you're anything like me, up to this point, God's not even been mentioned. He's not spoken up to this point. All we see of God is him arranging some pieces, getting some things in order. But that's about to change. God's about to do something. But before we press in on some of those things, I want to address something else that I have felt through these events. And I think it's likely that many in the room have also felt through these events. The way these stories are being told gives us a vision that God has very clear eyes on hurt and pain and suffering in the lives of people. Like how these events unfold, it's obvious to us that God knows there's pain. He knows there's hurt. He knows people are suffering. And I think it's possible that you actually walk in here this morning and God knows you're in pain. And you're suffering. Maybe the most difficult season of your life is how you walked in and took a seat here this morning. And so why doesn't God do something about it? Why does he let babies die? Why does he let innocent people suffer? Why do awful, life-shattering things happen to innocent people? Where is he during all the suffering in Egypt? And not only that, where is he in all of the suffering today in my life or in our world? How can we reconcile a God who's supposed to be infinitely in control, 
infinitely loving and good and for us with the same God who does nothing about suffering and evil in our world? I think these are big questions and important questions to ask. Why would God allow suffering and evil? And let me, let me be honest. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Why have you lost a child? I don't know. Why have your loved ones died? I don't know. Why did you get that diagnosis? I don't know. I, I wish I did know. I wish I knew why you had all the suffering and pain in your life. I wish I knew why we had all the suffering and pain in our world. I don't have an answer that's going to satisfy your logic or make your suffering and pain less intoxicating. I don't know. But what I do know is some reasons it's not. I do know there are some reasons that we can't point to. All of the storylines in the Bible push us to one main storyline, including all of this in Exodus. Like one of the things we're trying to give vision on as we talk about all of these events is it really gives eyes and vision to another storyline. And that's the storyline of Jesus. We're never going to coat that or, or make it behind the scenes or behind the curtain. Like all of these events in the story push us to the greater story that the Bible is really all about, which is Jesus. That is that God himself came down to suffer and have pain. To take care of sin on the cross. Walked himself to the cross so that God could pour his wrath out for your sin and my sin on perfect, righteous, holy Jesus, so that he could give us freedom, so that he could give us mercy and forgiveness and grace. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of God being for you infinitely and a God who loves you infinitely. So I can tell you this, why is there suffering and pain in your life in the world? I know it's not because God doesn't love you. And I know it's not because God isn't for you. Because we wouldn't make the argument that God doesn't love and is not for Jesus, who is God, who is one with the Father. So we can't make this logical argument that if there's pain and suffering, it means God doesn't love us and is for us. Because none of us have walked the road of suffering and pain that Jesus did because wrath of God was on his head. Not just physical pain, not just loss of loved ones, not just leaving family behind. And so why is there suffering and pain? I don't know. I really wish I did. But I know it's not because you're not loved, and it's not because God isn't for you, and secondly, it isn't because God just wants to punish you. I don't know how this is going to land on you, but the most severe suffering you can deal with in your life still wouldn't make up for all of your sin. Like you having cancer isn't God balancing the scales of your sin. Because I just want to help you. I want this to land as gently as possible. Your worst suffering can't balance the scales of your sin. Your sin equals death eternally. And so when you have difficulty in your life, it, it can't be because God's punishing you. Because his punishment is clear. The consequences of sin is death. That's what's clear. Not, not cancer. That's not even enough to balance the scales. And so God graciously is not just punishing us. In fact, Jesus says three really important words while he's hanging on the cross. In the wrath of God's being poured out on his head. He says three really important words. It is finished. 
which means God is not withholding a measure of wrath just in case you screw up. He wants something in the tank to pour on your head. It's like, no, no, no. He poured it all out on Jesus. And if he's done that, he doesn't have wrath to give you. And so suffering and pain, first and foremost, is not an example that God doesn't love you and is not for you. And secondly, it's not an example of you just like screwing up in life and God just trying to crush you. If he was trying to crush you, it wouldn't be through the means that you're feeling right now. He crushed Jesus so he didn't have to crush you. And so I just want to say to your pain and suffering, like genuinely, I am so sorry. I don't know why you can't have kids. I don't know why you didn't get the promotion. I don't know those things. I wish I had an answer that would satisfy your logic and make it not feel so difficult and hurtful, but I don't have that answer. And I don't say sorry because I think what I'm saying is wrong. I say sorry because I know it's hard. But I know you have pain and suffering, not because God doesn't love you and not because he isn't for you and not because he's just out there to punish you. What we have here in Exodus 2 is God has allowed some incredibly difficult, life-shattering suffering and pain in the lives of people he loves. He's allowed it. We've watched it happen for two chapters. And he's about to do something. Look with me, end of Exodus 2. I've read this, but let me read verses 23 through 25 again. There's going to be three words here that are super helpful and important. Here's what it says. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. Maybe even hope coming from the death of that king. And yet another one replaces him who does the same thing. Hope is crushed. But the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. This section of the Bible gives us three words that God is defining himself that should land very comforting and gently for you this morning. Three words. God is a God who hears. He's a God who remembers. And he's a God who looks down and sees And here's what it means. In a world that's noisy, God hears you. In a world where there's important conversations happening all around the world, God hears you. Uh, One of the things that uh, sometimes I take some heat for, but I just, no shame, do it anyways, um, is I listen to books far more than I ever read them. Um, and if you ask me, hey, have you read that book and I actually listened to it? I'm absolutely going to say yes, even though I technically listened to it. What I decided to do is for so much of my life, I felt like I didn't have margin to read, but I became convinced that I needed to be like getting better and consuming content. And so while reading uh, allows me to retain things better than listening, listening allows me to retain better than nothing. And so what I've decided to do was just every time I'm in the car, I've got some type of book going in the car. But as you can imagine, there's times it's completely quiet other than my audio book, but my mind is other places, and while I'm hearing noise, I'm not paying attention to any of it. There's times I could be listening to something, and somebody's trying to talk to me, and it's I'm not even hearing a thing. This is how we're created as humans. Fortunately, God's not like this. 
He doesn't have to shush people so that his attention can be on you. He doesn't have to lower the volume of things in the car so that he can hear what you're saying. Infinitely, day and night, rain or shine, he hears you. Volume doesn't matter. Somebody else talking doesn't matter. You have his attention. You don't need to raise your voice. You don't need to pull him back to things you think are important. You infinitely have his ear because he hears you all around the world simultaneously hearing all of us. We have his attention. God heard their groaning. That's comforting. It's comforting. And he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, not only does God hear you, but he remembers. This is not a term to give us this picture of like God scrambling and there's papers on the desk and he forgot some things and somebody said, hey, don't forget, these people are suffering. And he's like, oh man, I I forgot. And so now I've got to come over here and enter back into their situation. I forgot, but now I remember. This remembering is a term to just describe the faithfulness of God, that when he says he's going to do something, that will happen. For the Israelites, he at one point promised there's going to be a day when you're not going to be in slavery. There's going to be a day when a leader is not going to try and genocide you. There's going to be a day when I'm going to bring you to a new land and bless you. It says God remembers it's time. His plan will play out. Leaders don't make decisions that God has to man time out and reevaluate and try and create new direction. It's like he remembers. He's faithful. He's not going anywhere. You have his attention and his purpose and his plan will play out. God is a God who hears. He's a God who remembers you. He's faithful to you. He's not going anywhere. When you think he's forgotten you, he hasn't. When you think he's fulfilling other people's promises and answering their prayers and not yours, he remembers you. He's not lost track. He's not lost track of your situation and your family and your circumstance. He is a God who remembers. And this is how Exodus 2 ends. Verse 25, he looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. His eyes We're on them. He's a God who looks down. He's a God who sees. And I would imagine for the Israelite people, knowing that there is a God who sees would have landed really comfortably and gently. Because up to this point in their life, they had a king who didn't see them. He saw their numbers. He saw their potential in building cities. He saw their strength, but he didn't see them. The Egyptians didn't see them. They saw a threat. They saw their labor, but they didn't see them. And so God is saying, man, there's all kinds of complexity and good news to God. But for specifically this reason and this situation, God is a God who sees. That should be comfortable to some of us in the room. When you feel like, has God lost track? Like this pain and this difficulty, where are you in all of this? Clearly you can't have your eyes on me, be loving and powerful and allow this to happen. And it's like, no, there's a God who hears. And God who remembers, a God who sees. I was reminded of one of the most prominent Bible authors who says this when considering the attention that you have with God. In Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, When I look at the night sky and see the work 
of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care about them? This is one of the most prominent Bible authors who had an incredibly close relationship with God, speaking of his attention of God, saying, wait, when I look at creation and I look at stars and I look at the design and creativity of millions of species, how does it make sense that I have your attention? How does it make sense with all that's going on in the world, all to maintain, all to lead, all to create, that you still have eyes on me? How does that make sense? It's moved David to feel this like insane, overwhelming feeling that while God is that, transcendent above it all, he's intimately in love with you. You never have to pull his attention because his attention's not going anywhere. His eyes are always on you. He hears you. He remembers you. He sees you. This is life transforming. If we can believe it, like God help me to believe we sung about it. I believe this, but you're going to have to help me in pain and suffering to find comfort in this God. All of these unique and powerful ways. God is saying these words ultimately, that you have his unwavering attention at all times. He's not lost track. Your sin hasn't made him disappointingly look a different direction. When you think you have the attention of nobody else, you have his. When you're suffering and in pain, you have his attention. When you screwed up and wonder if he's still there, you have his attention. When all's going well, you have his attention. God is showing himself to humanity to be one. That you have his ear, you have his eyes, you have his attention. This is wild news. And Exodus 2 again ends this way. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. God is going to do some things about what he sees, remembers, and hears. He's about to do some things. They've been waiting hundreds of years, and God's about to move. But for this morning, let's end it here. Let me pray. Uh, God, we are, man, people who question often even who you are, your characteristics, what you do, how we can reconcile things. Like, it feels so often to me like if I can't think of a quality reason for what's happening, certainly there can't be one. And so I'm asking that through pain and difficulty, through disappointment, through everything that I struggle to walk through in life, you would lead me to find comfort. That you of all people, you hear me. When my prayers don't feel like they're getting anywhere above the ceiling, you hear me. Not because of volume, not because of performance, but you hear me. You remember me. You see me. God, would you allow us in this room, would you allow our city to find genuine comfort? That with all going on in the world, all the important places for your attention to be, you still give it to each of us individually. We don't have to earn that. We don't have to work our way towards that. We have it right now. God, overwhelmed by that truth. And I ask that that land gently and comfortably on us here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.